and this bill before us, 1437, would put California in alignment with states like Arkansas, Kentucky, Hawaii, Michigan, Ohio, and Massachusetts, all whom have narrowed their murder statutes to address the breadth of felony murder. So I ask for your I vote. If you'd take the vote, that'd be great. This is Aider and a Better. My name is Avi Singh. I'm here with Sajid Khan. Sajid, what up? What up, Avi? We are joined by our friend Brian Matthews. Brian has been a public defender for around 20 years. He is responsible for recruiting Sajid Khan to the Santa Clara Public Defender's Office. That's right. He has been a litigator of all types of cases, including capital cases. We're just thrilled to have him. On this episode of Aider and a Better, we're going to talk about a number of criminal justice reform bills, not just targeted at nonviolent drug offenders, uh, was passed. Uh, it was like a flurry of legislation. So what we're going to do is talk about a handful of those important criminal justice reform measures, because it's so remarkable that in California all of this happened. We're hoping that a lot of these changes go viral across our country through federalism. Sajik, what should we start with? There was a huge revolution in bail and how we administer pre-adjudication detention and custody in SB 10, which essentially abolished the money bail system in California as we've all known it for our, the entirety of our years of practice here in California. SB 10 passed and was signed by Governor Brown and is going to go into law in October of 2019. The initial forms of the legislation were lauded by various criminal justice organizations, including the ACLU and reform organizations. But then many of those organizations that were on the front lines of supporting the bill ultimately withdrew their support from the bill and actually actively sought to have it not pass. It did pass and has been signed and so is being met with very mixed reception. Brian, when you saw that SB 10 passed, did you have any initial thoughts or reactions? Uh, the bail issue along with the other issues that we'll talk about represent a sea change in how we look at criminal justice. So initially at first blush, the bail issue seemed like a good thing. I, I think I share the concerns of the groups like the ACLU about the legislation and how it could be implemented. It seems to me that there are two concerns many of us have about the bail situation as it is now. There's an unfairness to determining uh, whether a person would be released based on their wealth, and that's cash bail. There's also a feeling that many of us have that we over-incarcerate. You can address both of those concerns in the context of bail. I don't know that this addresses the over-incarceration piece. It seems to me that it does eliminate at least some of the, the wealth discrimination that we see or the discrimination against the poor until we start talking about how these instruments that they're supposed to use, how they factor in things like poverty and race. And, and that's, I think, very problematic. The inequities that were so prevalent that in our money bail system, as we currently know it and as we've known it for the entirety of our practices, is that we had this inequity and this kind of intellectual dishonesty where if someone was charged with a particular crime, let's just say a assault with a deadly weapon and bail was set at $100,000, the two people could be equally dangerous or non-dangerous and that two people could be equally as likely to come back to court or not come back to court. But the person that could afford to post that $100,000 bail uh, would be able to get out. Well, the person that was 
unable to post that $100,000 bail would stay in for the duration of their case and would have certain pressures enacted upon them both implicitly and explicitly that would result potentially very disparate outcomes for those two people that were charged with the same exact crime. We always heard people who were involved in passing this legislation, what they would do is they would show up at these events and they would say, our bail system is unjust. If you're rich and dangerous, you get out. If you're poor and not dangerous, you stay in. The premise would be, if you're dangerous, however that's defined, you should be incarcerated before you're convicted. And so this gets rid of financial discrimination, the disparate treatment of people who are poor by way of holding them. At but least explicitly. Exactly, explicitly, and we'll deal with proxies. But at the same time, it just says, let's deepen our dependence on pretrial incarceration. And what I'm talking about is there's provisions about what happens to you when you've been arrested and you haven't come to court yet. And there's very strong presumptions for people charged with most misdemeanors to be released, people charged with felonies if they're deemed to be a low or medium risk to be released before getting to court. When you get to arraignment, the prosecution may file a motion seeking detention based on any of the following. A crime involving violence, threatened violence, or the likelihood of injury. You were on some sort of supervision like probation or parole. You were pending a trial, so you hadn't been convicted of anything, but you had another case open against you. You intimidated a witness, so a threats case or a don't call the cops case. But then finally, there's a substantial reason to believe that no non-monetary condition or combination of conditions of pretrial supervision will reasonably assure protection of the public or a victim or the appearance of a defendant. That catch-all, there's some reason to think that our supervision isn't going to work to protect people, is going to result in your incarceration. That means you're held. You're going to be held. You're not going to get out, pending your whole case. And that doesn't matter if the case is a credit-for-time-served case where the DA says, okay, if he takes a conviction, he gets out. That's one provision that leads us to really be concerned about when is a judge going to say, okay, this person has a crime involving a robbery with a weapon, but I'm going to decide that there's not a reason to be concerned about the public, right? And then you combine that with presumptions in favor of detention, which say if a case involves a strike, which strikes sound bad, but they could just be a normal offense with a gang enhancement. Right. Then there's a presumption against releasing the person. You can see how the political process made all these compromises about the scary stuff, misdemeanor domestic violence, violent felonies, and serious felonies, including stuff with gangs, you know, connotations. But it, that's going to lead to incarceration of people. And so we have a world right now where we have money bail, which is awful and illegitimate and unjust, but we also have constitutional protections for people to be released, right? There's this decision we've talked about, the Humphrey case, which prevents some amount of financial discrimination. When we have that combination of a world, if we're going to shift to this new SB10 world, there's a question about are more people going to be detained? There's a certainty that at least a different sort of people are going to be detained. And it's not just rich, poor. It's about charge decision making. Yeah. So watch, just watch charges change between this year and next year, right? Where more gang enhancements are alleged out the gate, where more strikes are alleged out the gate, because that way you wind up in a preventive detention setting. And that's, that's the scary thing for us is that it's no longer individualized about you, the person charged with a crime who has a family and kids and, you know, has got, was in the wrong place at the wrong time or whatever. And it's just about 
it says 186, which is the gang charge next to your complaint. This is so revolutionary in so many ways. One, in the initial thought is we're 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 like hundreds of yards away from a from First Street here in San Jose, and there's bail companies that line up both sides of the streets that essentially will become defunct and be a dead industry as a result of this legislation, which is pretty surreal to think because you know you think of uh, bail bond companies and their commercials they build themselves around jails and they make their livelihoods on the backs of our clients that are seeking to get out that's one thing the other thing that you just referred to is that the da's have so often used the our clients custodial status as part of their leverage to uh, secure convictions just because this legislation is passed doesn't mean they don't have that interest moving forward they're going to continue to find and utilize ways and uh, mechanisms within this law to ensure that that leverage that they've maintained for so long will be preserved they ultimately will be able to keep our clients in custody if at all within their means and then ultimately utilize that for their benefit in negotiations to your point and one way that they might do that is through changing their their charging decisions on the on the front end so that they have more arsenal to argue to a court to detain an individual which then has the trickle down effect if that person is detained they're more likely probably to take a plea bargain rather than go to trial I don't know that we've even been able to wrap our heads around what this might ultimately look like, both in terms of how the DAs will ultimately utilize uh, mechanisms within the law to keep our clients in, but then how this will impact plea bargaining and trial decisions for those clients that would have otherwise stayed in custody in our money bill system that will, will now be able to get out and have to make those decisions from the outside. It'll solve the person held on $10,000 bail. Right where the court just has this use of money bail. What happens to people before they're convicted, their pretrial detention, is really up to judges as decision makers. What they've done is they've been able to say, I don't need to make that call. I can just, you know, say 10,000 bail, right? And whether you can post it, you don't post it, that's up to you, right? I don't have to make the I'm letting you out call. I can just say, I'll let you out with this condition. So that's gone. And those folks who are charged with auto theft and drug offenses who are being held because they don't have money to post $20,000, they're going to not be held anymore. And that's good. And our dependence on money bail has been ridiculous. So it's good to get that out. Right now, you can get out if you're charged with certain misdemeanor offenses. You can get out before you show up to court. If the DA is deciding whether to charge you, you don't have to be sitting in jail while that's happening. Now, for a list of offenses like misdemeanor domestic violence, crimes involving violence generally or harm, there's a rule preventing you from being released before you show up to court. And we know that the most disruptive time for an individual is the first couple days. That's when their car is going to get towed. That's when they're going to get evicted. That's when the job goes. So, you know, there's a value. There's a social cost to holding people in jail at that initial phase, it, it harms all of us. And a decision was made because these are scary people who have scary charges or whatever hmm. to not let them out until they show up in front of a judge. And that's messed up. I think the question is around this bail reform is what exactly are you looking to deal with? If you just want to eliminate cash bail, this probably succeeds. This does it, yeah. Assuming that it survives what is, I assume will be constitutional challenge, then you've done that. But have you impacted the system and the fairness of the system in a real way? You probably haven't. There are a few people who will benefit from it, 
probably low-level offenders, is my guess. There are some people who will be hurt by this because they, they cannot make cash bail because it won't exist. So maybe those folks who maybe who are not our clients as public defenders but are still not wealthy people who could post a small bail will no longer have that option. There are going to be people who are going to benefit, people who are going to get hurt, but are we going to reduce our reliance on incarceration as a response to crime or accusations of crime? I don't think this does that. That, to me, is, is my main objection to this, is I think it fails in probably one of the most important aspects of things that we need to change. It may make it worse. I think we have to see how it all plays out. What, what are the judges going to do? Right. Are they going to really keep this many people in? Maybe they will, you know, and then we have a problem. We should talk for a moment just about the use of risk assessment tools or quote-unquote validated risk assessment tools. The law requires the development of tools that are scientifically supported to give us predictive power as to whether somebody's going to commit an offense that harms public safety or fail to appear in court. And we have some familiarity with how these tools work because we actually use them. They attempt to eliminate the use of things that have socioeconomic, racial, or other discriminatory factors. But some of them, educational background, current employment, those are going to be connected to financial ability, right, to pay bail. So the person who hasn't had a job, who is going to be discriminated against in our money bail world, that discrimination will play a role in the, whether they're high, medium, or low risk. The person who's had a stable address will be a lower risk. Mm -hmm. The person who has a supportive family will be a lower risk than the person who is living alone, maybe in an unstable housing situation. And so if they become medium risk or if they become high risk within this quote-unquote scientific approach, then there's going to be a bias in, in terms of holding them because the danger is that they're not going to show up to court. Isn't that where we as defense attorneys have to fill in the gaps a bit? Isn't that you know what we do in our bail hearings currently? And I think what the law has set up in within its parameters is that it has these various checkpoints you know, at arrest. And then it has the pretrial services assessment. Uh, there's an arraignment where the judge makes a certain decision. And then the DA has to make a motion for this preventative detention. Then there's this preventative detention hearing that has to take place within a certain period of time. And there's provisions within the law where that uh, preventative detention hearing can be reopened or relitigated, you know, under certain changed circumstances. When I hear you talking about these potential areas where people can still be discriminated against in either implicit or explicit ways to these risk assessment tools because of their race or because of their socioeconomic backgrounds or lack thereof, I feel like that's where we as defense attorneys are tasked with filling in the gaps and, and providing context to the client that doesn't have quote unquote stable housing or doesn't necessarily have a job uh, or does have uh, some failures to appear on their record or has some prior convictions for a number of low-level offenses. These issues are going to exist in our current money bail system, and they're going to exist in the system that's being uh, set up by SB 10. And that's where I, f I feel like, and I, I feel some optimism or hope that we have the ability to fill in those gaps and provide that context. I don't know what the alternative is. The problem is I see it with these algorithms really yeah. the risk assessment tools right are that they they seem to be objective and so when we're trying to add things in what we're adding in are subjective things mom's going to come in and testify or the girlfriend or the employer well they have a relationship with our client 
they're human beings. Maybe they're going to tell the truth. Maybe they're not. So you have all those questions. Um, maybe they're just biased because they love the guy. The problem is when you factor in things like number of police contacts. Well, if you live in a certain community, you're likely to have more police contacts even if you're not engaging in any kind of different conduct than somebody living in a wealthier community because we over-police certain communities. And it happens to be communities of people who are poor and people of color. And so what we do when we have these algorithms or these risk assessments is we bake in the very inequities that we already see in the system, but we do it in what looks from the outside like a very objective manner. And so it becomes a very powerful and dangerous tool. Yes, obviously, we do our traditional job, which is to humanize our clients in in an inhuman system. But this, in some ways, makes it harder because we're not just fighting against a prosecutor who's Mm -hmm. got another witness who also has biases and all the human frailties, but we're going up against a computer, basically. And And a computer that might get even stronger deference Yes, and a computer that doesn't treat our client as an individual, but as a member of a group that certain studies say are more likely to whatever, reoffend or not come back to court or whatever, not as an individual human being. And so these algorithms, I think, are really, really dangerous and almost by definition are going to bake in the very problems that many of us would like to see eliminated from the system. Imagine a situation where you have a favorable risk assessment outcome, but the case involves, you know, a use of a weapon or it involves a threat made during the course of a shoplifting. The court isn't bound just by the risk assessment. So let's imagine the risk assessment is the dopest, you know, coolest, most woke risk assessment that you could imagine. And it says that we don't want to discriminate and we don't want to use any proxies and we don't want to use the old system brought into the new system, like with missed court dates or convictions mm-hmm. or strikes, right? Where if a person's held in custody under money bail and then they're offered to get out with a strike, now that's a count against them in this new woke system or whatever. Even when we have that positive tool, there's still room to point out one fact in the police report and say, look, your honor, this person used a knife. And then notwithstanding the good outcome, the person winds up being held in a preventive detention and now that all the system is geared up against them we can't do the sort of work that we are able to do when our clients are not incarcerated and just about the mitigation we have to fight we have to mitigate we have to build bonds with our clients we start at arraignment our clients have been incarcerated they don't have their bank statements they don't have their letters from their employer they're at the biggest disadvantage on day one when they show up they don't even know what they're charged with yet it's very challenging to overcome that this person's a high risk, I better hold them, right? These are people making decisions and they're making 30 decisions in an afternoon about whether to release individuals. So one of the th- concerns that I've had or one of the thoughts that I've had in terms of the critical response to SB 10 is that I haven't necessarily seen from criminal justice reform advocates what the alternative looks like, uh, what a, a more ideal system would look like. And I don't know that we have the capacity, their expertise within the three of us to to come up with that. Uh, but do you guys have thoughts as to what would be a more equitable or ideal system that deals with these various factors? Any any thoughts that come to mind? Yeah, I would get rid of the catch-all. This per- there's some reason to think this person's dangerous, mm. separate from they committed a threat. We have a California constitution, and as it, it reads right now, unless it's changed, 
in its interpretation or it's amended, and there's a possibility that that might happen in the next few months, you have a right to be released, which I'm saying is bail. You have a right to be released unless it's a capital offense, unless there's clear evidence that your release would create a substantial likelihood that someone would suffer great bodily harm, or you made a threat and there's real good reason to think you make good on the threat. Absent those circumstances, you get out and you have a right to individualized decision-making. So we can do all of that so we can protect the public by having ankle monitors, house arrests that you don't have to pay for, and just not using money bail. And we're there. We're home. You know, we're home on reform. All this stuff about a risk tool sets the default. You can't get out if you're high risk. A judge must consider risk score and what that means. There's going to be tons of litigation about everything, but the scientific validation of these risk scores and where they're set up and what they mean. If you're high risk, even though there's a number of individualized factors about you that suggest you should get out, and that risk score trumps those individualized factors, is a judge making a decision about you? Or are they putting you through an algorithm? Right? You, we have a right to not have algorithms decide what happens to us. There's going to be lots of litigation. But the way, just to answer your question, that I would think is you get out unless there's some really good reason related to you harming somebody for not getting out. Uh, That's essentially creating a presumption of release. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you presume that most people should not be held pretrial in custody and then you may have reasons why some people should be held and that would that's fine but you're treating them as individuals now that means you are by definition giving a substantial degree of discretion to judges but they're ultimately all elected officials and so we watch what they do and then you can vote them out if you disagree the discretion ultimately has to land somewhere Right. And I think that's that's where it lands. And then you can guide it by creating a presumption of release. But that type of thing would require a real true sea change in how we view the system. Right. Which is what you started this conversation with in terms of our use of incarceration as our as our kind of method and means of of criminal justice. Yes. And it and to me, it's it it's a slow process, but it's a process, I think, that's happening. Like when I started practicing it was right around the time we had three strikes come in. I started getting three strikes cases shortly after Romero came down, allowing judges to strike them. Before that, judges, a lot of judges didn't think they had the power to strike strikes. It was an incredibly punitive time. If you have a narcotics offender, someone possession of drugs when that was a felony, and they have two strike priors, before the judges had the power, they would get a 25-to-life sentence. Yeah, judges were given life sentences. It's a three-strikes case. I don't have any choice. It's a life case, regardless. It's it's any felony, basically. And so that's why you had the guys stealing a slice of pizza and getting life. And then we had Romero come. He said, well, you can ask the court to strike the strike. So that changed things pretty dramatically. And that's right around that time was when I started getting felony cases I mean, we're going to talk about some of the other legislation, too, but it all seems to be working together, and there's there's a change in how we're starting to see this. Um, it's not nearly as dramatic as I, I would like to see, but it's there, and I think bail reform is a part of that. Yeah, definitely. Let me ask you a question. Let me, guys, ask you another question. What is, this is a kind of a practical one, what incentive will our clients have in this new system? To come to court, I'm just I'm wondering. Um, obviously, to adjudicate their cases and to find resolution. Um, any thoughts about that? There's a big incentive to not be on the run. If you could be stopped at any moment and taken to jail, 
if you could be removed from your family at any moment. There's reason to want to avoid that. There's reasons in terms of the outcomes that you can secure in terms of in your case. You watch somebody who's out of custody on a misdemeanor case. They miss court. They show up in jail. Many, many times they wind up pleading guilty to the charge because that way they get out. There's lots of incentives to, or to come to court. However, people aren't making like a cost-benefit, am I properly incentivized decision when they're missing court. I don't think that our court appearance rate really has much to do with money bail or with SB 10. I, I think that people come to court because they know that they don't want to get arrested for not coming to court. So that, that's my thought about it. What do you think, Brian? I think that's probably true. I mean, certainly there's some people who are coming to court because they know they'll lose a certain amount of money. But I would say that's not what most of our clients are thinking. Most of our clients, they're either have these issues, you know, drug issues or whatever, and that's getting in the way of them being where they're supposed to be at the right time and all. Um, or they have mental health issues that are doing that. And sometimes our clients are just making bad decisions. And I think we have to be honest about that. But I, I don't think they're making the decision about money, about appearing in court because of money bail. I, would, I mean, I've had clients out of custody with serious cases who come to court. They're looking at a good deal of time and they still come to court. Those guys would have the same incentive as anybody mm -hmm. after money bail to flee because they're afraid of the consequences of a conviction. But a lot of them haven't. So how do you explain that? One other reason I think people don't come to court is just the complicated experience of avoidance, you know, and just yeah. fear and... One other amendment that I would propose uh, if we were ha to have a more just system is if the DA says this person's so dangerous they can't get out and they need a preventive detention, if that's what they say, but then they're offering credit for time served or a judge is offering credit for time served, then the person should get out. This isn't the conviction on machine getting fueled. And I think anybody who is interested in this sort of reform, who voted for this type of reform, should be moved by the idea that we don't want to further our use of pretrial incarceration to work convictions. I would love to say every time I get a credit for time served offer, it's time to let the person out now. Whether you supported this reform or not, you should not feel comfortable with the circumstance you just described. Yeah. Because that's not justice. Wherever you fall on the spectrum, I think we all like to say we support justice however that's defined. That's clearly not justice. So it doesn't matter how you feel about bail reform. You're exactly right on that point. So why don't we move over to SB 1391. Do you guys want to uh, describe what this one is? Yeah, so this is actually pretty straightforward. It's a part of the uh, changing trajectory of juvenile justice in California. So just a few years ago, the district attorney's office had unfettered authority to prosecute teenagers 14 through 17 as adults, uh, 14 and 15 year olds that were charged with particular categories of crimes, and then 16 and 17 year olds accused of any felony. There was no mechanism in the law that provided anyone, whether it be defense attorneys or judges, uh, any recourse to undo that decision. So the next step after that was Prop 57, which required that when they were seeking to direct file a young person as an adult, that they had to go through a transfer hearing. And so now since 2016, we've seen this flurry of transfer hearings where prosecutors are put to task and are being vetted in their decisions to uh, attempt to prosecute young people as adults. Now with SB 1391, it takes it a step further and says that 
14 and 15 year olds cannot be prosecuted as adults at all, regardless of what crime that they're accused of, regardless of whether or not the DA is willing to go through a transfer hearing for that ultimate purpose. And so this passed, if someone who was 14 or 15 uh, accused of uh, the particular class of crime that would allow them to be prosecuted as adults is not apprehended until after the expiration of juvenile court jurisdiction, the DA then could seek a transfer hearing to have that person once they're apprehended, transferred to adult court. So this is a pretty, pretty big sea change moment. One of the things we talked about with Mark Bookman on an episode 14 going on life without parole was this person named Ricky Olds. He was 14 and he was prosecuted as an adult just in the normal course of the case. And that happens all the time in the state of California before Prop 57. This is like a separate layer of protection, legal protection for kids, 14 and 15 year olds that make sure that they don't get prosecuted as adults. I talked to a a friend about what we were going to be talking about on the podcast today, and they were shocked that 14 year olds could be prosecuted as adults under any circumstance. I think that people's idea of what we do with kids is different than what we've been doing with kids. So it's kind of a realignment. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because when I've represented young people that have been prosecuted as adults, 14 year olds, 15 year olds, 16 year olds, and we're either sitting in a DA's office or in a, in a courthouse and asking either the DA to undo their decision to prosecute this young person as an adult or asking a judge to undo that decision post Prop 57, I almost felt like it was like a bizarro world where I was the one person in a room full of well-educated adults telling people, these are kids, we should treat them as kids. And then everyone else had this presumption that they weren't children. I was having to convince people that kids were kids as opposed to that just being the standard that kids are kids children are different they are uniquely susceptible to peer pressure that their brains aren't as developed as adults that they have so many things that are beyond their control that they can't extricate themselves from and that they're uniquely apt for rehabilitation uh, as compared to adults that are perhaps more entrenched in certain behavioral traits. It's a relief to see legislation that affirms and acknowledges what we were arguing in these meetings and in these courthouses for so long, and finally to recognize again that kids are kids and that kids are different. It was a huge relief for me on a personal note because just three years ago, I represented a 14-year-old boy who was charged with the gang-related attempted murder pre-Prop 57, pre-SB 1391. He was housed in juvenile hall, but then was brought into an adult court, shackled, sitting with adult inmates and those that are accused of uh, crimes as adults who were 18 and up, some probably some as old as 40 or 50 years old, and he's sitting in the same galleries with them. And it was a really harrowing, traumatic experience for me and very frustrating and helpless feeling to be in those rooms and to be in that courthouse and not to be able to do anything to get him back to juvenile court where he belonged. Ultimately, he accepted an adult felony conviction offer uh, with a certain period of incarceration. It was really taxing to be a part of that process and to feel so helpless. We as a community turned that feeling into action. And so for me on a personal note, as I mentioned, when SB 1391 was being drafted and being promoted to the legislature, a locally uh, Silicon Valley debug was part of the movement to, to not only draft the legislation, but then to promote it. And then we ultimately, with debug and many other criminal justice organizations, went up to Sacramento this past summer 
and Christian's mom was one of uh, the advocates for the passage of the bill. So she and I were part of a small group amongst many other groups that were meeting with legislators telling her story, telling Christian's story, telling our story, um, and advocating for the passage of this bill. So it all kind of came full circle last Wednesday night when SB 1391 passed. Uh, I was just, my heart was full. I was crying tears of joy and happiness and uh, almost just like this culmination of this kind of three-year experience that Christian and his family and I have gone through. Well, I think the interesting thing about about this situation is that the law is sort of catching up to the science. So it started out where we had really bad science, sort of, I put in quotes, where we were saying that these are just bad kids. And that kids are just little adults. They're just small. Little adults, and that these little adults are evil. Super predators. Super predators was the term. That's right. And we're going to just lock these people up forever, and and all our problems will be solved. Well, the science suggests that that's just totally wrong. And when you look at even the United States Supreme Court cases, dealing with juvenile offenders, we talk about Roper and some of the other cases, some of the cases that Brian Stevenson has actually taken up. Miller and Graham. Miller and Graham, that's right. They're recognizing that kids are different, that our brains are not fully developed really until age of almost 25. And so the justification for treating these young offenders as adults starts to really go away. There are, I think, some concerns that have been mentioned about, you know, the unique, dangerous, youthful offender. There are places in the Welfare and Institution Code that could address those issues, that could keep the community safe in those rare cases. But I think the important thing to remember is that we shouldn't be making policy based on that one unique sort of case that sticks in everybody's mind. There are a whole bunch of kids out there that are going to be impacted by this who will benefit from it and actually have productive lives after the fact who otherwise would be thrown away. Right. And that's really the miracle of legislation like this. So one of the bills that was also moving forward through California's SB 439, and what it would do is it would prevent the juvenile court from having jurisdiction over kids under 12 with exceptions for certain sexual offenses or offenses involving great bodily harm. I've never represented anybody anybody under 12. I'm trying to think back, you know, if if I've heard of any kids under 12, and I think there have been a couple, I believe, but it's very rare. And I, I think it's so rare that this makes a lot of sense because either these crimes are not being committed by kids this young or prosecutors are using discretion and they're not filing on kids that young. The message is that there are other ways to deal with those kids than criminal justice. Because of the unique nature of how young they are and because of the things that are so many things that are beyond their control or so many things that have happened to them that manifest in their alleged criminal behaviors that oftentimes criminal court is not the appropriate place for these issues that are just manifestations or symptoms of deeper rooted issues in their families or in their communities or in their neighborhoods. There are other, there are other ways and means of both protecting public safety and uh, ensuring the growth and healing of young people that might engage in criminal activity at young ages. One possible benefit of a bill like this, even if it's rare that a 12-year-old in California or someone under 12 uh, in California would be prosecuted, is the evolving standards for a Eighth Amendment challenge sometimes depend on 
what is acceptable in society. So if in California it's not acceptable to prosecute 11-year-olds full stop, then perhaps that can inform a legal challenge somewhere else in our in our country against a, you know in a place where they are able to prosecute 11 and 10-year-olds. Yeah, and on that point, SB 1391 hopefully in terms of direct files of 14 and 15-year-olds hopefully uh, spurs other states to follow suit and hopefully California isn't seen as an outlier, but instead as kind of a leader in this new frontier of juvenile justice. Why don't we take on the change to the felony murder rule? Uh, It's called SB 1437. This is one that Michael Ogle had mentioned when we had him on the podcast as his thing. Uh, He was anticipating this change. Do either of you want to just explain just briefly what the felony murder rule is and how it applies to accomplices? Brian's been handling homicides for a long time, so he probably has a better feel for, for... felony murder and its various kind of iterations and how this is a um, dramatic change in in terms of potential liability under felony murder law. Want to give it a stab? (laughs) Sure, sure. (laughs) Uh, So felony murder as it is today, so independent of this new legislation, is a very broad way of capturing people in criminal liability. So what it basically is, is if a person is killed during the commission of a a listed felony, um, say a robbery, Um, Even if there's no intent to kill, even if the killing is just a mistake, the person is liable for murder. Um, So you're not just liable for robbery, but you're also liable for murder. Then you ask, well, what about the person who's sort of there helping to commit the robbery but doesn't actually kill the person? Well, that person is also on the hook for felony murder. And then you say, well, what about the person who's just along for the ride, maybe helps a little bit in the robbery, like the getaway driver? Well, that person is on the hook for felony murder. So it's a very broad brush that extends liability for murder, which is mostly likely going to be a life sentence. The new legislation limits that liability. It takes some of those people out of the murder charge. The language of SB 1437 in part reads, it's necessary to amend the felony murder rule and the natural and probable consequences doctrine as it relates to murder to ensure that murder liability is not imposed on a person who is not the actual killer, did not act with the intent to kill, or was not a major participant in the underlying felony who acted with reckless indifference to human life. Only those categories of folks as opposed to the getaway driver would be on the hook, potentially on the hook for a murder conviction as opposed to a conviction for being a participant in the robbery, uh, the underlying robbery. And they're pulling some of that language from United States Supreme Court cases that talk about the special circumstances, felony murder special circumstance. So it's limiting the number of people who would be captured by the felony murder rule. Some of the uh, language that is actually embedded in the legislation, it reads as follows. Reform is needed in California to limit convictions and the subsequent sentencing so that the law of California fairly addresses the culpability of the individual and assists in the reduction of prison overcrowding, which partially results from lengthy sentences that are not commensurate with the culpability of the individual. It was pretty powerful language, not only as it relates to felony murder, but the fact that the legislature is, is recognizing that we have essentially over-incarceration and that we have disproportionate sentences. This is a means and way of chipping away at some of these uh, very systemic issues that we have in place. It seems like what they were able to do is combine prison overcrowding with a principle of justice, where there's this unjust idea that's contributing to major prison overcrowding, uh, specifically life sentences, and which leads to our 
elder prison population. You can find all kinds of areas where we have prison overcrowding, which has a financial and liability cost and federal oversight cost to the state, and combine that with what are the unjust roots of that overcrowding. And that's a place to target reform that can you know, not just be about nonviolent drug offenders. Of course, your liability is reduced if you don't have an intent to kill and you show up with a person. Just to repeat the Ricky Old story, he was convicted because he was there at, a gas at the beginning and he was there at the end and he fled. And there was some statement, you were supposed to help. And he said, no, no, no. This is a 14-year-old kid. So that, like, those two points of injustice, that he was a kid and that he didn't do any killing and got a life without parole sentence, that sort of injustice can be cured and it happens all over our state. I've seen over the years a lot of uh, injustice behind the felony murder rule and its breadth. It's really, I think, good to see the legislature recognizing this as a problem and coming up with a fix that's both retroactive and will help people going forward. And I do think, Avi, you're right. This is a pressure point uh, for other places where we might look in the code to make changes that can reduce incarceration and reduce these unjust results. I mean, if the legislature can do it on this, it can do it on lesser things. There's a, a hopefulness to this whole legislative session, which to me is that they're willing and open to look at these reforms, and we're no longer living in the tough-on-crime world that we lived in for the last 20-plus years. Yeah, one possible huge benefit in terms of our justice outcomes would be preventing people from being put in the following bind. They were present at some offense, and there was a killing that resulted. And then they're being told, you face life in prison as equally responsible for the killing as the other person. And so now we have deals for you. Yeah. You know, that right. there are certain deals that become unconscionable, right? There's so much power on the person. If you give us a cooperative statement, then you will avoid this life liability. I think that it's much more conscionable if you do negotiation around what your offense is, not around what a fake offense is for you that's totally made up uh, that involves life in prison. Right. None of us would want a justice system where the accused could be convicted based on the word of somebody who did not kill anyone who was facing life for being present at the killing. Mm. This change will dramatically impact how these cases are are adjudicated in our system. And so, like you said, that anvil or that threat of someone being prosecuted for murder, for being at the scene of a robbery gone wrong, won't be present anymore. And so it will dramatically impact how that person is, is going to be adjudicated through the system. And then to your point, it's going to dramatically impact how the actual alleged killer or shooter or assailant will be adjudicated through the system as well in terms of what witnesses uh, will be available against him or not, uh, what their incentives are to lie or not lie. I mean, it, it's uh, really significant. So it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out in our caseloads. Well, um, ultimately, what you're doing is you're holding people accountable for what they did, not for what somebody else did. And in the legislation, they talk about the natural and probable consequences doctrine, which may be some inside baseball, but they're talking about the idea that, you know, if you could foresee what would happen, you could be held liable for it, even if you didn't do it, even if somebody else did it. And foreseeable is like very low standard. It's been interpreted to be basically possible. So we're not really treating individuals 
as the people they are. We're not addressing what they did. We're just assessing a, a huge amount of liability to people who don't necessarily merit it, and we're giving the prosecutors an awful lot of power in the system by doing that. This corrects that. Why don't we take a break and come back and do our things? Okay, we are back. Sajid, why don't you kick us off with a thing? Uh, my thing is a, is a bit of a somber note. Uh, one of our former colleagues, John Bridenthal, passed away much too soon on August 14th. He was a colleague of all of ours here at the Alternate and Public Defender's Office uh, for several years. He predated my arrival at the, at the office. I got to know him on the softball field, on the Freedom Fighter softball team, and then would often walk with him to court. Uh, in the latter stages of his career. He retired a couple years ago and unfortunately passed away. So I'm just uh, thinking about JB. And um, he's the first former colleague of mine that has passed away. So it was particularly jarring to, to hear about it, to think of someone who, like I said, I walked to court with and would see in court to think that that person's no longer here. Um, it's uh, it was pretty pretty tough tough to process still processing it uh, but I'm thinking of him and his family and appreciate um, his service as a fellow freedom fighter amen to that amen so my thing is just uh, continuing our legislative discussion the California legislature is looking at the presence of immigration customs enforcement in the courthouse and how it's toxic to our system of justice it prevents victims from getting access to justice it prevents our clients from coming into court it prevents us from marshalling defenses because our clients are from communities where they live, right? Their friends and their families might have fear and might not come into court. So we've actually talked about this on the pod and kind of the early, if you're old school with Aider and a Better, if you go way back to when we had to the old music and we had the handheld recorder. <laughs> so we, we've been talking about this for a while and I was just thrilled to see that uh, there's a provision saying a person shall not be subject to civil arrest of any type in a courthouse while attending a court proceeding or having legal business in the courthouse. What it does is it subjects a violation to contempt and it authorizes the attorney general to seek relief. So that way it's set up for litigation on kind of a broader scale, not just individual ICE officers. It will be subject to future litigation from the United States government to allow them into courthouses. But I think that these courthouses are important places to uh, maintain integrity and maintain access. So good on the legislature for taking this step. That's my thing. Brian, what do you got? Well, my thing is based on the, the current legislative session, and it's it's a feeling that, that I have of, of hopefulness going forward. Um, for a long time, almost the whole time of my public defender career, it's been easy to feel beaten down by the tough-on-crime measures that continually got passed more and more special circumstances, more and more death penalty, more and more strikes laws, Prop 8 laws, all the crazy sentencing. We're finally opening our eyes to those mistakes and correcting them. Um, I firmly believe that. And I, I guess my shout out is, is some pride in the Santa Clara County Public Defender's Office and the Alternate Defender's Office because 
we have lawyers who are playing a role not just in court every day with individual clients, but also in Sacramento advocating. And we have you guys doing this podcast. We've got Jennifer Redding up there reminding us all the time about how she's in Sacramento and and how we should call our representatives. We've got Gilda Valeros who's done that. Charlie Hendrickson has done that. We've got Michael Ogle doing that. And I'm sure there are people out there that I've missed, but it's a time to be very proud to represent criminal defendants. And it's a time when we can make a difference. So my thing is um, a shout out to all those people who are doing that, who are inspiring me every day to come into work and, uh, and do the best that I can. And I'm very thankful for them and for the legislature and ultimately the governor for being open to treating our clients as the human beings they are. So that's my thing. Yeah, well said. Thank Thanks, you Brian. again, Brian, for coming on. Thank you, guys. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Our intro music and our outro music are by Lee Rosevere, and music you hear during this episode is by Omniboy. So please check them out, and uh, we will talk to you next time.